Blog Talk Radio. My name is Michael Acolins, also known as the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. And on behalf of my partners, I welcome you to episode number 59 of a Metsian podcast. As you know, Major League Baseball and the Players Association have reached agreement on a 60-game season. Today, I'm happy to say we here at a Metsian podcast get to focus back towards the New York Metropolitan Baseball Club and everything orange and blue. So happy for that. So with haste, let me bring on my partners, our CEO, the converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, everyone. What's going on? Uh, it is crazy to talk, be talking about baseball. I myself have been trying to get back into the mood. And, and you know, I'm, I'm reminded that just a few months ago, it's really only a few months ago in the great span of things, that we were rekindled, uh, our, our excitement for baseball, we were reminded because of players like new players like Fernando Tatis Jr. and Pete Alonso. And so I don't think baseball is completely gone from the, the American woodwork yet. And hopefully, uh, you know, uh, God willing and, and, and the, the virus willing, we can get this thing done. Well, Independence Day is right around the corner. Let's herald in the national pastime as best we can. Uh, our third member of this Metsian triumvirate hails from Connecticut. Catch him on Twitter at Mets Killing Me. He's also Metsmerized Online's newest writer, and a damn good one at that. Congratulations and hello, Rich Sparago. Well, thanks, Mike. Looking forward to it. Um, hope it's as much fun as doing this with uh, with you and Sam and all the guests we have. And, um, you know, here, here's a warming thought from me, is if everything plays out, you know, and we don't end up with interruptions because of COVID, as Sam said, God willing, this will be the last Sunday where there isn't some kind of active baseball going on in terms of, you know, training camp through the playoffs until uh, to right around Halloween. So, you know, from my lips to God's ears, maybe, it's been uh, three months without baseball and, you know, by this time next week, camps will be open, and then we'll have baseball talk about right up basically to Halloween. So let's just hope it comes, you know, everything holds. But uh, but that's a, that's the thought I wanted to impart here. Well said, my friend. This evening's guest is the editor of the upcoming anthology, The New York Mets and Popular. It should be published by McFarland and Company in September. He is also the editor of The New York Yankees and Popular Culture and the author of Our Bums the Brooklyn Dodgers in History, Memory, and Popular Culture. He is the chair of the Society for American Baseball Research, Northern New Jersey chapter, also known as the Elysian Fields, excuse me, Elysian Fields chapter, and has spoken for several years at Sabre conferences and the Cooperstown Symposium on Baseball and American Culture. He is David Krell. I, I welcome you to a Messian podcast. Thank you. Joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, please take a moment. Uh, you know, put 
your bio in your terms and, uh, you know, tell us everything about you and what you're doing and where we can find it. Well, I, at the risk of being self-deprecating, it's, it, it kind of feels like that George Costanza scene when he says, if I take everything I've done in my life and put it on one page in a resume, it looks pretty good. That's outstanding. So at this um, moment, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, no, look, I, I, I came to this project because I did a book about the Yankees, the Yankees in popular culture, and we talked to Ed McFarland about well, do we do a Red Sox in popular culture? Do we do a Cubs in popular culture book? What, what do you want to do? And I said, I can't do a Yankees book and not do a Mets book. So the Mets anthology is a lot different than the Yankees anthology in that, and Sam and I had talked about this, if you say that you're editing an anthology of the Yankees in popular culture, you pretty much know that somebody's going to offer you a chapter about Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, and Reggie Jackson, and Mickey Mantle, and Joe DiMaggio. They might go down different avenues, but you know that that's happening. With this Mets book, there's such a diversity of topics. I had people pitching me the Mets and hip-hop, uh, the swagger of the 1980s, uh, and, and how that fit with the Mets and vice versa, how the 1980s, you know, that was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and Donald Trump, and Gordon Gecko and Wall Street, and... Um, you know, the glitz and glamour of Dallas, who shot J.R., uh, 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 Joan Collins and Linda Evans on, on Dynasty. There was a swagger about the 80s. Uh, Donna Halper, who is a baseball historian, wrote about Bob Murphy before he came to the Mets. And then we have someone writing about Mr. Met versus the Philly Fanatic and that mock rivalry that has gone on for so many years. Someone writing about the Shea Stadium rock concerts, uh, the, the hat, the Mets hat that we love so much in City Slickers and in Gone Girl and the controversy surrounding it. Um, it it's really uh, something that will challenge even the diehard fan and will bring surprises to those who think they know everything about the Mets because these guys really did their work in bringing new, I would say, new angles to new topics, not even old topics, but new topics. Sam, what we have here is a wealth of information. <laughs> help me extract yes. some of this. Help me extract some of that for our listeners. Take it away. Well, sure. And, and David, you know, you and I uh, got together because, and I can't even remember exactly what tweet it was, but I, I believe it had something to do with the Dodgers. And, right. of course, uh, you know, uh, we, we've talked uh, a little bit about the Dodgers. We've talked a little bit about the Mets. So I was hoping that you could give our audience uh, a little bit of a background of your personal history as well as your personal baseball history. Well, when I went to Villanova Law School, I found a case about the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was involving a, uh, a bar called the Brooklyn Dodger Bar and Restaurant. So the L.A. Dodgers, Major League Baseball, they don't like people infringing on their trademarks, as is their right. They want to protect it. So these guys did this restaurant with no permission whatsoever. So they sue, and they have this powerhouse firm, and they sue the, uh, the, the restaurant's owners, and they're represented by a neighborhood firm. And the neighborhood firm won. It was David versus Goliath. Basically, the judge said, you don't use the trademark, you abandoned it, there's something in trademark law called use and commerce, you have to use it, otherwise you lose it. You have to use it to generate revenue. If you don't, 
that's hoarding, and you can't do that. So they said, look, you left uh, 30 years ago, and, and you don't do anything with the trademark. It's not yours. You know, they had, they're within their rights. Now, after that, as you guys know, uh, leagues, teams became much more proprietary about their trademarks and their intellectual property. I always remembered that case. So when I was writing for the Entertainment Arts and Sports Law Journal for the New York Bar Association and contributing articles, I said, gee, I want to write about this case. And it just morphed into this compendium, not only about the Dodgers, but about baseball in general and culminating with the case. And as I'm writing it, I'm thinking to myself, this is a really long article, but I'm uncovering a lot of lore and myth and history and debunking myths that I haven't seen anywhere. And I bet if I took a year, I could write a book about the Brooklyn Dodgers. No one's written about popular culture in the Dodgers. Nobody's written about fan interviews except for Peter Golenbach, and that was in the 80s. I bet that there's a lot of uh, that I could mine and research and talk to fans and get their perspectives. And that's what I did. So I got an agent. Um, for whatever reason, we weren't able to make a deal, so I sold it myself to McFarland. And any self-respecting baseball fan will tell you they have a few books about baseball in their, in their library, on their shelf, and a lot of my books are from McFarland. So I was really happy to be working with them. Well, that's, that's excellent, and, and you also had a personal connection with the Dodgers, as your dad was a Dodger fan, correct? Right. My dad was a Dodgers fan. We had a neighbor who was also a Dodgers fan. He was a little bit older than my father, and of course, when you're growing up in the 70s and 80s, you're hearing Phil Rizzuto on the Yankees broadcasts, you're hearing Ralph Kiner on the Mets broadcasts, and they're talking about the great Dodger teams. Old-timers day, which the Mets don't have for reasons passing understanding, always brought Pee Wee Reese and Duke Snyder and some of those guys back to Shea Stadium. I shouldn't say back to Shea Stadium, to Shea Stadium. And you got a chance to you know, see these aging ballplayers, but hear them tell stories about when they first met Jackie Robinson or when they faced uh, you know, Mickey Mantle in the World Series or whatever it was. So I decided to make the prologue and the epilogue to the Our Bums book about my father. And he went to the World Series as a teenager through the generosity of a cousin who had season tickets to all the sporting events in the, in the New York area. And I closed with an epilogue that was about the two of us going to a World Series game in 1978 through the generosity of a family friend. So it was, an, it was a nice way to bookend the history of the Dodgers and really kind of um, give an insight as to how important that team was and how the legacy continues, not just in, in films and not just in books, but in people's hearts. And that's a big reason why I wanted the chapter about the, uh, the fans, because when I talked to the fans, it was like talking to my father. Whether you're a janitor or a CEO, they all talk the same way. They all talk with reverence. They talk with nostalgia. They talk with a little bit of sadness about the Dodgers. I even had one guy started to cry uh, when I'm talking to him. And this is a guy in his 70s, and he, he paused, and he said, gee, you know, I'm talking to you. I'm crying because as I'm talking, I feel like I'm 10 years old again. And I got that, that response from a lot of people that I interviewed. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I know the feeling uh, for sure. And and so my my question, my last question before I pass it back to Mike, is where do you you see the Dodgers' lore fit into the Mets' story? Like as a Mets fan yourself and, and your history with the team, had had just in your your research, have you seen the connections with both the fans and the team itself? Oh, you mean besides the rotunda at City Field that has Brooklyn Dodgers well, photographs all over the place? Exactly. I thought I was going to save that exactly. for later in the later in the podcast and talk about new ownership and what they should do. But if you want me to talk about that now, I'm I'm fine doing it. Uh, we all know that. Well, ownership aside. Of... Hold on. We all we all know that the Dodgers colors. Are um, influence the Mets colors, Dodger blue and giant orange. And that's where we get the orange and blue. But that's kind of where it ends. I know that the Wilpons wanted to make City Field look like Ebbets Field. I know that it was a um, it was kind of an homage to the architecture, and I get that. That's that's really nice that they did that. I just think the Mets have nearly 60 years of history, and when you walk into the rotunda, it ought to reflect that history. And it's nice that it's yeah, named after agreed. Jackie Robinson. If it were up to me, it would be named after Joan Payson, the original owner, who should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, she's, she's one of the few women owners that we've ever had, and she truly loved baseball. She truly loved baseball. So uh, the Dodgers, yeah, I mean, the Dodgers and the Giants both. Uh, we, we co-opted the Giants NY. Uh, we, we co-opted both teams' colors, and we, you know, we weren't alive back then, but uh, in the early 60s, the first Mets fans were really the leftovers from the the National League fans in New York who stayed with baseball. Some of them got so disgusted they never watched again or they never went to games again. But when the 62 team came to be, it was exciting because from the people I interviewed for the 62 book coming out next spring, they told me at least we'd get to see Willie Mays. At least we'd get to see Sandy Koufax. We'd get to see the great teams of the of the late 50s and early 60s. They'd be coming here. They'd be coming here. Our idols would be finally coming here. We don't have to watch the Yankee games anymore. We can finally have our place back. And I think that's a, you know, we, we've continued that legacy to one degree or another. And there are lots of parallels with the Giants, too. I mean, Willie Mays coming back in 72 and, you know, him, he played, what, the, the last year and a half of his career in a New York uniform. That's a pretty nice, uh, nice return. But, you know, it's unfortunate what, what happened when the Dodgers left, but if the Dodgers didn't leave and the Giants didn't leave, then we wouldn't have the Mets, and we've tried to carry on that, that love. And I, I think in terms of what you're talking about, Sam, I think that there's a different kind of a fandom with the Mets than there might be with other teams. You know, the Mets are, they, they represent hope. They don't represent arrogance, except people from the 80s might disagree because that team was full of brashness and swagger and, you know, the team everybody loved to hate. But generally speaking, when you get off the six train and you're going to Yankee Stadium, Yankee fans by and large don't talk when they get off the subway. They saunter. They strut. They're wearing their Yankee jerseys. They're wearing their Yankee hat, and they just want to get to the ballpark. I don't even have one foot off the seven train, 
and people are chanting, let's go Mets. There's a different kind of, a, of an excitement in being a Mets fan. And there's a lot of, as you guys know, there's a lot of you know, ups and downs in being a Mets fan, too. Here, here, Mike, uh, you know, talking about Joan Payson, preaching, preaching to the converted, correct? <laughs> no doubt. Man, this is one of those nights I wish we could talk baseball forever. Uh, David, to you I have this quick anecdote. At Barclays Centers, when the Nets had the Brooklyn right. Dodgers flagpole ceremony, I attended right. that. I was there. Uh, and on the side, I spoke to Marty Markowitz, who at the mm-hmm. time was borough president. And I said, Marty, what about painting a blue line along the Brooklyn Dodgers parade route? And he said very adamantly, no, this ends it. I thought you might be interested in that. And to all baseball fans and Mets fans, I'm picking up where David left off in so far as the 62 Mets. On YouTube, listen to the Giants' first game back to the polo grounds in 62. There's a uh, game two of a doubleheader, I believe, in May against the Dodgers. Listen to that game. Gil Hodges hit three home runs for the Mets that day. And just listen to the crowd. Yeah, they cheered on Willie Mays and the old Giant fans cheered on, you know, their their old favorite team uh, players and as the old Dodger fans. But the the Mets fans ruled the day, and you could hear that loud and clear in, in those uh, old radio broadcasts. All right, gentlemen, you ready to talk baseball? Let's do this. And David, I'm going to start with ownership. I know it was it was on your mind. And hopefully you can help us make sense of this great dilemma. Uh, and I'll set it up for you this way. You know, it's we're still unsure whether the Wilpons are looking to sell the entire team or just 80% or somewhere in the middle. That's yeah. funny. Uh, they have Allen and company looking to uh, spearhead this negotiation for them. A couple of things. Forbes, as of April, I believe, valued the team at two point. $4 billion, somewhere around there. And very recently on our podcast, uh, the New York Post had put out information that they're upwards of $800 million in debt. That's S&Y and the team combined. Uh, Jeff Wilpont says there's four or five suitors out there, but we're only aware of two groups, maybe three if you want to include Steve Cohen. Uh, and then there's that mystery overseas interest. So take it away, David. Well, I always say we don't know what we don't know. We only know what's being reported. So we don't know if the Mets have silent, uh, you know, people who want to be silent looking at this, kicking the tires. We don't know if the Mets have silent partners right now. We just don't know. And if they sell, it will be, uh, you know, kind of a be careful what you wish for. I know a lot of Mets fans are unhappy with the Wilpons, but you don't know what the next ownership group is, is going to be or what they're going to do. So I think people need to be really, really careful. And this is the first uh, – when was the last Mets sale? I think the Wilpons bought their ownership in early 1980 or the early 80s, somewhere around there. So this would 1980. be uh, – 1980. So you're talking about 40, 40 years. And you know, like I said, for for me, I come at this from a more historic perspective, from a more uh, you know, holistic perspective. Uh, it's great to put a winning team on the field, but let's start by honoring the fans. Let's start by honoring the history. 
what will those new owners do? Will they take down the Brooklyn Dodgers photos in the rotunda and put up, you know, John John Matlack, Jerry Kuzman, Ron Svoboda, uh, you know, David Wright, Dave Kingman? Will they put those up? If you go to Camden Yards, there are oversized photos of Orioles history all over the place. So I'm very interested in what they're going to do beyond saying we're going to bring a World Series championship because every new owner says that. Every new owner of a football team says we'll bring a Super Bowl title. Every uh, every NHL owner when they buy when they buy a team says oh well we'll bring the Stanley Cup here. And there's no reason to doubt that there'll be a big big press conference. And if somebody you know somebody buys the team. They'll say, hey, we, we want to bring New York, we want to bring the National League club in New York a, a World Series-worthy team. We want to do that for the fans. We know that's going to happen. I want to know what's going beyond that. I want to know the investment they're making in the future. Because if you don't have history, not to get too weepy about it, but if you don't have an appreciation for the history, then where's the future? This is a game of tradition. You know, I listen to you guys. This is a game of tradition and war and generations. You know, uh, Sam mentioned the thing about my father in, in our Bums book. That's what baseball is. It's about parents and grandparents taking their kids and grandkids to Old Timers Day and saying, I saw him play. I saw him play. I saw him play. That's David Wright. That's Mike Piazza. Or if you go back a ways, maybe it's Reggie Jackson. You know, maybe it's, you know, uh, you know, Mariano Rivera, maybe it's Daryl Strawberry, maybe it's some of these guys that you want to pass on that that lore to, and that those myths and the storytelling, and and you know Ted Williams hitting 406 in 1941, and you know Mickey Mantle uh, and, and his challenges off the field, and how he kind of uh, rose to the occasion, you might say, in trying to conquer demons and and be an instructor for people how not to live. And he said that, don't be like me. I'm a role model. Don't be like me. We're missing all of that, and. Having a billionaire buy a baseball team doesn't fix it. Having a billionaire come in and writing a check and absolving the debt and taking care of all the finances, it's great that we're going to talk about, well, maybe they'll invest like Steinbrenner did. Maybe they'll invest in free agency. Maybe they'll invest in a team. Maybe they'll make monster trades. That's all terrific. But if you don't capture the essence of the magic that is baseball, then we're nowhere. And if you don't capture the essence of your individual team, then then it's hopeless. Because every team has a personality, every team has a history, whether you're talking about the Blue Jays, the Orioles, the Mets, the White Sox, the Angels, the Yankees, it doesn't matter. Every Every single team has a certain connection to that locality and a certain resonance. And if we miss that, if we lose that, the sport's done. And I know people say that all the time. They say that, all. oh, well, baseball will reinvent itself. They always come back after the strikes. I mean, look at what's going on around us now. We're at an emotional cornerstone in this country with everything that's going on around us. And a lot of people are looking to baseball as an outlet. I'm not as confident as you guys might be on people getting back to their level of fandom. I'm just a little skeptical on how that's going to work, and we can talk about that later. Rich, you want to pick up from there? 
Well, you know, David made a lot of really good points, you know, and it seems to be, and who knows, right, but it seems to be that Blitzer and Harris are the front runners, if you want to use that term, to buy the Mets. At least that's what I'm reading. And when you look at it, you know, just, just a couple of little fun facts here. As you may know, they own the Devils and the 76ers, right. so I just found this to be particularly particularly interesting. In the 25 years before they bought the Devils, the team had made the playoffs 21 times, including five trips to the Stanley Cup. In seven years since, the Devils had been to the postseason just once. So while that might be you know, not the greatest um, track record with the 76ers, you know, who we all know tanked in the, in the mid-2015 like 2015 era, they did obviously improve quite a bit under Harrison Blitzer, their ownership. Right. So uh, but it's, it's a mixed bag, and how much does ownership really have to do with that? Who knows? But, but I just thought I would share that. It's from the New York Post. So, but to pick up on what David is saying, um, you know, there are a couple different ways that an ownership group can really impact the product on the field. Number one would be, and I think this is where you're going, David, is having a passion for the game or the team or the fan base or something like that. And I, I can't imagine that Harrison Blitzer would. I, you know, Steve Cohen don't know. Uh, I believe A. Rod probably would if he were, you know, if he were to buy in because of his love for the game. But right. what they could do is they could say, look, you know, I love this game. This is a flagship franchise. I want to invest, and and quite frankly, I also want to invest in my pocketbook. I want to do some marketing here. I'm going to make right. this place look like the Mets. I'm going to do it because A. I want to win, and B. I want that money to come back to me that people I, – I've, you know, what we talk about in marketing is an unmet need. Well, the unmet need is for City Field to look like the Mets and, the, you know, the fans right. to feel like the ownership is invested. So they might do that. Um, you don't know. You just don't know. So that's one thing they could do. So it, to me, it's, it's one or the other would be a positive, is if they come in with a strong desire, you know, a strong passion that they could bring forward, or – Simply, which I think is what I'm hearing about Cohen, I'm not sure if he's a Mets fan, you know, and, and want the whole thing, but he would just, he hates to lose. So he would just throw his heart and soul into it and say, make this the best product ever, which is what he seems to do with everything he touches. He just wants to be the best. So right. and there's always a chance, as David said, that you could end up with another lemon ownership group. You just don't know. So, um, so that's where I am with it at this point. All things considered, I'm willing to roll the dice. I mean, I, I'm willing to say that, sure, the next owners could be as bad or, God forbid, worse. I think the odds are against that. So I'm willing to say that hopefully whoever buys the team will either come at it with a passion for New York and the New York Mets or a passion to win, win which usually means spending. So I'm willing to roll the dice that one of those two could happen. But I certainly recognize that it's not a given, right? No, I, I don't think anything is is a given in this life, and certainly not in baseball. But the Mets so far have shown some kind of a connection to its to their history. But geez, when I walk in that rotunda and I see the Brooklyn Dodgers memorabilia and the photos, I you know, I'm, I just think I'm in a different ballpark. Well, can I, I can I actually I, let me. If I could ride with that one, um, just considering especially uh, that as a Mets fan, I agree that it was too Dodgers-centric uh, as well as um, the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm just going through 
uh, but my script and stuff. But uh, the thing about that specifically, if we're honing in on the idea of another ownership hypothetically coming in and hypothetically looking around and saying, we need to put Mets stuff here. The problem, I think, for that specific place is that, yes, the, he, he was way too focused on the Dodgers and everything – uh, he did, uh, and you could tell, especially because the only Mets photos were sepia brought to you by uh, Nokia. Um, they had literally, they, they were black and white photos, basically, of the New York Mets. It, it, it was crazy. There was no orange and blue anywhere in the building. But the problem is that you're not entering there and looking around specifically at the Brooklyn Dodgers. You're looking around at the Jackie Robinson Rotunda. You probably cannot do anything about that specific entrance. You might be able to somehow incorporate the Mets around it, but and get some some orange in there. Maybe even make it uh, coexist with with Willie Mays in some fashion, or or stuff. Maybe even make it about Larry Doby. He's from Patterson. Who knows? Are, are are you telling me, Sam, that if you hit the lottery and you got an ownership group together? that you wouldn't be taking those photos down, that you wouldn't be finding a way to do it, and putting Kingman and Matlack and Kuzman and Seaver, even Nolan Ryan, Swoboda, David Wright, Mike Piazza, you wouldn't be putting those photos up there? I totally hear you, but Mike, Mike I'm going to pass it to you after, after this. I just think that, that with the Jackie Robinson Rotunda, it's, because it's of who it is, it's kind of protected. I agree with you in that sense, and that's a very easy fix. You have a statue of him. You know, that's what it should have been. You honor him with a statue in the rotunda and a plaque explaining or some kind of poster explaining the greatness of Jackie, who he was. But this is more of a testament to National League Baseball in the 50s. And I understand Mr. Wilpon has a a tremendous connection. I I know that he, you know, he – knew Sandy Koufax growing up. He's very close with Mrs. Robinson because I interviewed Mr. Wilpon for an article that I wrote. So he's very conscious of his personal history and the National League's history. My, as a Mets fan, my take is you can still do both. You can name it after Jackie. You can have a statue in there honoring him. That's fantastic. But don't dismiss 60 years of a team's history and 60 years of a fans going. But look how look how good they've been at statues, right? <laughs> well, that's another thing. It took it took Tom Seaver's family sending out a press release talking about his illness for everyone to get on board and say we need a statue of him. Uh, Mad Dog Russo was talking about this years ago. I said to a friend, "Why isn't there a statue of Seaver right outside? There there should be one." And I, you know, better late than never. Better late than never. <laughs> Gentlemen, I think we put Metsville in a state of rage. This is what we feel. This is what we feel. I'll merely end this segment. Statue for Joan Payson is long overdue. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, they did just that. They dismissed Mets history by not incorporating the Hall of Fame in, you know, City Field's grand opening. Uh, yeah. And if anything, I, you know, I would, I would have been very happy had they erected a museum to National League Baseball, New York City National League Baseball. 
they could have taken that all the way back to the 19th century. And, and, and can I and, and I'll just interrupt real quick, Mike, and uh, that the uh, the San Francisco Giants basically did this with like you know a season ticket thing called the Gotham Club, where it's just basically exclusively New York Giants stuff. And if there's ever a an example of the way to do it right now in your history, it's it's that place out there with the San Francisco. But this is most definitely a difficult uh, mistake to correct. Uh, I don't know where new ownership take this, takes this. We certainly know where the present ownership has taken it. So, gentlemen, let's talk baseball. Okay. Uh, what's my first question? Spring training part two. Is 24 days enough time for players to prepare and for pitchers to stretch out A and B do you foresee a profusion of injuries? So, Sam, get us started on that. It's a great question about the injuries. Um, I think the – I mean, considering they're only doing, like, three spring training games, uh, that's the only concern. I already think that the spring training season's too long. The question is, even for 60 games, is three too short? Um, I'm sure they're going to be doing some inter-squad games – uh, they're probably, you know, just going to be doing enough stretching and, and working out the actual drills. Um, I, I think considering that they were already starting to get games in, that, uh, you know, equates in some fashion. Hopefully they've all been staying conditioned uh, so we don't see these injuries. And, and maybe it will work out better considering that we already think they're too worked out during the season and that, that some of these muscle pulls are because their muscles are too tight from working out too much. So maybe this will actually end up working all right and, and we won't see a plethora of injuries. Woohoo! You're listening to a Metsian podcast. Our guest this evening is David Krell. Uh, so, David, what say you about uh, this modified uh, spring training part two? Well, these players now take care of themselves year-round. So I think when they go to the ballpark and they're you know, going through their paces for spring training, it's a lot of chemistry. It's a lot of you know, d- turning the double play, the, the sacrifice bunt, just the fundamentals. I don't know if 24 days is enough. I don't know that it's not enough. And regarding injuries, I don't think people are as worried about pulling a hamstring as they are about COVID-19. It's only going to take one clubhouse manager to test positive for that to send shockwaves through baseball. So, you know, injuries happen if people are trying too hard. I I think you guys talked on the last podcast about it basically being, you know, you're thrown right into a pennant race, essentially. Um, They might be overexerting themselves. You you can pace yourself when you're in a 162-game season. You can't really do that in a 60-game season. And I, I wonder what psychology that's going to, uh, you know, what, what psychological impact that's going to have on the players. So I, I'm looking at it from a, a little bit of a different perspective, I guess, and I, I would be much more worried about the COVID than I would be about stretching out and limbering up and ligaments and massages and all of that stuff. So, Rich, reporting day is coming up this week. And uh, I believe by July 23rd and 24th, we're going to have a baseball. So, you know, the next 
25 days is a real flip of the coin, isn't it? It kind of is. But, you know, if you do some math here, um, this year, the first full squad workout, I might be off by a day, but I think it was February 16th. So that gives you 12 days in February, and opening, opening day would have been the 26th of March. So that's a total of 38 days, right, from the first workout to the first game. This, this time around, I don't know what you want to call it, summer training, training camp two, whatever you want to call it, is 24 days. So you're 12 days difference, right? So that being the case, I'm sorry, um, 26 so we said it was, what, uh, from the 16th, 12, plus 26, so 38 to 24, 14 days difference. I'm sorry. So the question is, are those 14 days, how relevant are they? How relevant will the absence of those additional 14 days be toward player health? Well, I, I agree with Sam. You know, if you watch spring training, if you watch spring training games, Keith will always say, because we love Keith, he'll always say spring training's too long. You only need two weeks of games. They do this, you know to make more money, and I understand that, but it, let's face it, spring training is too long. So, okay, so is 14 days too long, seven days too long, who knows? But I think we can go with most players think the conventional 38 days would probably be too long. So I'm not, and I'm going to go with David here on this one too, because I'm not really worried about pulled hamstrings and strained lats. You know, Mets had a couple of those, right, in, in spring training one. Um, I'm not really worried about that kind of stuff. I am also more worried about COVID because, let's face it, you know, uh, the Texas Rangers, some of their employees at the ballpark uh, came a pretty big outbreak there. And um, what happens if the players start getting it, right? That's what I, I think the whole thing is on thin ice because what if an entire team can't compete? You know, what if it becomes a point where, the Boston Red Sox don't look like the Boston Red Sox because all their players are on the COVID list, and you have you know all these guys you've the never heard of. And at oh point, my God! Yeah, at what point you know the commissioner does have the right to step in and cancel things and say this is not a representation of our product that we want, and I'm putting a stop to the season. Let's hope to goodness that that doesn't happen. But to answer your question, Mike, short answer: I'm not worried about traditional baseball injuries because this is a little bit shorter. I think these guys are in great shape, and yet, and we've heard that spring training is too long. I'm much more worried about the COVID. Let's uh, let's ask a few questions about the players before we start gauging the competition. Uh, Sam, let's assume that this plan comes together. Cespedes is a time to recover. What do you foresee from him and Robinson Cano? And you might as well include any conversation or thoughts you have on the designated hitter, being as it's being implemented, either or both might wind up in that role. I mean, you, you have to think that at some point in the next few days, we're going to start hearing about the conditions of these folks, uh, specifically Yolanda uh, Cespedes. Um, I think, you know, Cano was ready to go one way or another. Uh, I, I don't even remember, but I'm sure he got some at-bats. Um, Cespedes obviously was not ready for at bats, but we haven't heard anything about his conditioning uh, up until this point. So it's it's going to be very interesting this week. And, and in terms of what you guys are talking about, though, because you got to go to this, does this mean that like one COVID positive test and the entire thing gets shut down? I mean, when you really think about it, that 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 could be the way they're 
thinking about this in terms of zero tolerance policy. So, uh, man, it, it's, it's very curious. This entire thing is, is very curious. And uh, of course I, I'm hoping we can get some baseball in, but I mean, which just, this is unprecedented times as we've said way too much over these last few weeks. I wonder if, oh, go ahead. No, go right ahead, sir. I wonder if they would have been better off scrapping the season and just coming out and saying, for the sake of the country, for the sake of the fans, for the sake of the players, we're shelving 2020, and we, we hope that we'll be back in 2021. Because if what, what – I forget which one of you just said if Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, comes out and cancels the season. That sends chills up my spine. As a lawyer, as a newsman, uh, you know, news producer, as a journalist, I, that would be a PR debacle of epic proportions if they came out August 15th and said, you know what, we have too many players testing positive, we're scrapping. I mean, that, that would just be epic. And talk about loss of money it would be a loss of confidence. How, how can you now have confidence in the spring if they come back? So I agree with Sam. We're at a crossroads. I, I think people will be looking at this cautiously. Will people have the same passion? I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I, I think the players, you know, it will come down to whether they feel comfortable playing because if a player gets in and he has severe symptoms – and he's laid up for the rest of the year, are the other 20, 24 guys going to take the field? Are they going to take that risk? Or are they going to say, you know what, there's not enough money in the world. You know, my, my life is more important, so can, let's vote to shelve until 2021. That's, that's another possibility. Perhaps. I've always said that they should have scrapped the season since day one. Uh, fear, concern, anxiety to me, are no different than a physical injury. It impairs your play. It impairs your thinking. So, uh, I I don't know. I don't know. I guess they're going to have to implement this plan and, and see how it goes, and if it starts to take a drastic turn for the worst, they should suspend activities immediately. I mean, this is the, well, the, perfect, the perfect storm, Mike. The perfect it storm is, perfect is the fact storm. that, and, and, and it, I will go it, back and I will blame. I will go yeah. back and blame uh, the lack of cohesion and, and, and the lack of fifty states adopting one standard plan of attack against this virus. But you know, let us not go there. Our intention was to get our minds back focused on New York Mets baseball. So what I will do? To, go ahead, David. Well, just to take the skepticism further, in the last podcast, you you all were talking about the when, when the Mets go on the road, that the visiting team or the home team's broadcast feed will be piped into SNY, so we'll be hearing the Dodgers broadcasters or the Reds broadcasters. Is that is that right? That is right. Yeah. The uh, so, so why why can't why can't Keith, Gary, and Ronnie watch the feed, and then call the game as if they're watching it. Why do we have to have that feed? That's also going to destroy connections to the team. <laughs> I, 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 if I were a Cincinnati Reds fan, I would want to hear the Cincinnati broadcast team. Yeah. 
I don't want to hear my, the Cincinnati broadcast team. I want to hear the New York broadcast team. And and, and aside from that, there's there's no one better than the trio that we have. I mean, that's just a fact. My answer to that would be a lack of creativity uh, on behalf of producers. You know, I, I think having the three of them in their living rooms watching the game and commenting as they go along would uh, draw not only, you know, a good time, but a good rating. They, yeah, they and then you get the crack, the crack or open of a beer uh, that Keith has at the, with, with his, they, as he pets his cat. They did it for a video game. They can't do it for, for a video feed. I, I don't, I, this game is driving me crazy. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about rules now where there'll be a rule if it goes into extra inning, an extra inning or two or three or whatever, you start with a man on second. I, I don't I don't see this sport. I, the DH and the NL I can live with, but these other rules just seem so bizarre. I'm speechless. Rich, Rich, you want to take it away? Because I, I agree. I'm in lockstep with you, David. I really am. Uh, and it, it, it indeed leaves me speechless. I can't believe what we're going through. But, you know, for the sake of 2020 and getting through it, I'm agreeable to some things. I just don't want them bleeding into next season. Rich? Yeah. You know, the thing about the uh, the visiting team television crews not traveling is definite. I don't know if teams will have the option to have, you know, their own commentators watching and, you know, sort of like doing a, uh, the baseball equivalent of a Zoom meeting or not. I, I don't know that. I haven't, I haven't read that anywhere, that that will happen. And something tells me that for the sake of uniformity, they're not going to want that to happen because everything I've read is that um, the home team broadcasters are going to be tasked with, like I said on the last podcast, tasked with giving a, a fair and balanced presentation, you know, giving equal teams both prominence, uh, equal prominence, I should say. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. Maybe we'll get Gary, Keith, and Ron in the pre and post. You know, maybe they'll do that where they could at least give their thoughts on the game so we can, you know, at least have a piece of them anyway for 30 of those 60 games. But to answer your, your original question, Mike, about the, the Mets and DH position and what are we going to get from Cano and Cespedes, um, I, I think the DH thing is going to be great for Cano because it will give him a chance to not have to play the field. And, you know, as an aging, I think I believe he'll be 38 this year. Uh, I think that will work to his advantage. I'm a huge Cespedes fan, and I've been very excited about seeing him, and I got even more excited, as much as I hate the DH, I got even more excited about the fact that he could DH and we'll get to see Cespedes play. But uh, I'm not sure if anybody heard Howie and Susan today. They do a 9-to-1 on Sunday mornings. And Anthony DeComo was on, and he kind of threw cold water all over me because he said, you know, he goes, yeah, it might be nice to see Cespedes play, but this man has not faced live pitching. It'll be exactly two years, almost to the day, for July 24th. So um, what realistically can you expect? I mean, if you, if you let realism sink in here, he's going to crush, like, crush it. Well, he's going to crush it. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. And DeComo said that. He said maybe. But the thing is, if you want to play the odds here, hasn't seen competitive major league pitching in two years coming off a, a man who's in his mid to late thirties. I, I think he's you know, technically like mid thirties, what he reports um, coming off of two surgically repaired heels. I mean, in a bad break, you know, last year with the, with the uh, wild boar and all that. So 
a lot adds up against Joannis Cespedes. He could have a bust-out year, true, but, um, but I think we have to temper our expectations for Cespedes. Next question. No Noah Syndergaard. Is the Mets pitching deep enough to contend with the defending champion Washington Nationals, Atlanta, Philly, Tampa Bay, and the Yankees, which I put on the first tier of this year's competitors? David. Well, how deep does the pitching of any staff have to be in a 60-game season? I think that's what we're all dancing around. What is success? If Alonso goes on a tear between July 15th or July 30th and August 20th and hits 450, and he winds up the season at 407, did he really hit 400? Is that going to count as a season? There are all these variables that we're we're talking about and we just don't know. I, look, I hope Syndergaard and Degrom win all the games between them. Uh, I, you know, Syndergaard, I'm, I was nervous last year or the year before when there were flirtations with the Yankees or there were rumors about the Yankees. And I said, well, they can't, they can't really trade them, can they? They can't, they can't be that foolish. So thank you. Syndergaard's had uh, Tommy John surgery. Okay. Well, look, we'll see if it took. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. Everyone's physiology is different, so we'll see if it happens. We'll see if, he, if he's been able to rebound from it. Hopefully it, it worked. Um, you know, we'll see. I'm, I'm just concerned about, from a more holistic perspective, what is, as you're saying, you know, can, what is the depth? Is it strong enough? What, what does depth mean in this new environment? Play manager for a second. David brings up Alonzo going on a tear, something to that effect. I bring up hot streaks and cold streaks. Earlier today, I put out a tweet that Casey Stengel and Gil Hodges platooned any chance they had. And in the 60-game format, that might be a smart way to go. What do you think? Well, um, I, I, I think that you have to certainly feel how everybody is is going. I mean, you know, it worked with J.D. Davis uh, last year. Uh, you know, I, I forget exactly. Uh, I, I, he He's a right-hander, right? Uh, J.D. Davis is a right-hander, yeah. Right, so he, re- he really wasn't – he wasn't hitting – he couldn't really hit uh, – uh, he, he was really good at winning left-handers, correct? To that effect. Yeah, right. he was so, better. But he hits righties pretty well too. But go ahead. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But but like something to that effect. You know, if you really see like you know with the whole Wilmer Flores effect, which obviously he's not on the team anymore, um, and uh, especially because it's sixty games, you got to run with that. You got to figure out what what works. Uh, you know, they 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 did win World Series with. Uh, uh, you know, Ed Charles at third base, but also uh, Wayne Garrett. So it, it it can certainly work. It can certainly happen. And you just got to feel it out one way or another. Um, because at some point, if it's not working, obviously you just got to go with what, what does work. Otherwise, in a 60-game season, you're going to very quickly find yourself out of it. And I just want to finish with the, the rotation specifically. Um, I, I think it really, it, it, in many ways, because Syndergaard's out, 
it hinges on those two signings that seem like a distant memory that we're, we, we forgot that we even talked about, and that is Michael Walker and Rick Porcello. And uh, they're going to be very crucial if the Mets are going to make any, any charge uh, and, and get some winning streaks going there. Well said. Uh, and, Dave, I'll throw it back to you for a second. Uh, again, platooning. And saying it another way, that's cutting it off at the pass. Do you go straight to that? Because what time is there to see how things work out? Well, somebody wrote a Sabre article that I wish I had written for the, uh, the, the Baseball Research Journal that comes out twice a year by the Society for American Baseball Research. And they talked about exactly what you just mentioned regarding Gil Hodges. They talked about if Gil Hodges had managed the Cubs instead of the Mets and DeRocher had managed the Mets instead of the Cubs, who would have gone to the World Series? And the general consensus is the Cubs because DeRocher drove his players into the ground, Ernie Banks especially. And platooning, I've never thought that was a bad idea. I know when sports writers write about platooning, they might as well be writing about aliens. It's so it's so um, foreign to them that managers would do it, or it's, it's somehow a negative for sports writer. Sports in sports writers' eyes, it's a negative that managers platoon. Maybe that's just the way I'm reading it, but I think it's a fine idea. You preserve the health, you preserve the longevity of the players, and if you get into the postseason, which looks pretty good in a 60-game season, then at least you have them for the rest of the stretch. Rich, you want to jump in on that? Well, you know, the Mets um, in the, this environment, you guys made some really good points. You know, short season, how much you need your fifth starter. I think you need a fifth starter a lot, though, because you're trying to do 60 games in 66 days. So there's not going to be a ton of off days. So you're not, it's right. not like, you know, typical early season, right, where you can skip your fifth starter. You're not going to be able to do that. And especially, I know the they did not agree to put in a lot of double headers. There might be one or two along the way, but not too many. But without the off days, I think you're going to need a fifth starter, which brings us to the Mets. Well, you know, with Syndergaard on the shelf, the Mets are going to be relying on two guys who uh, are both crapshoots in their own regard. You know, Waka for injury purposes. Hopefully, you know, Waka, when he's on, he could be very good. But he's had a lot of injuries. And then Porcello, you know, you have a guy who won the Cy Young three years ago, but you also have a guy who got the living tar kicked out of him, you know, uh, through the five ERA. So you're, you're basically taking the dice and rolling it on the craps table. What are you going to get? I don't know. Um, maybe if, if, these, if these chips come in, I'm using a lot of gambling analogies. I don't gamble. But um, if these chips come in the right way <laughs> for both Waka and Porcello, Great. You know, things will work out just fine in Syndergaard's absence. But if both or or one really tank, um, they could be in trouble because they're going to need a full rotation. Sam, let's talk about the competition for a second. Uh, we're relying on Edwin – excuse me. We're relying on Rosario, McNeil, Conforto, Alonso. Do we have what it takes to compete on the first level of competition, the Yankees, Tampa Bay, Atlanta, Washington, and Philadelphia? And below that, on a second tier, we'll put Miami, Boston, Baltimore, and Toronto. 
So are these guys ready to step into the limelight? I only, I know we're only talking the games here, but in, in a 2020 frame of mind, this year, it is what it is. Are these guys ready to step up and, and, and carry us? You know, it's been so long since we talked actual baseball that I, I don't know what these teams look like. I, I, I would have to seriously review every single one of the names that you just right. listed off there. Uh, it's it's remarkable to me. But what I do know is that uh, the Mets are not going to beat Miami. So let's just put that team aside. Uh, that's just they're they're gonna they're gonna get on our nerves as they always do. So it's really about um, beating Baltimore and Toronto in many ways. And and what what was the other team, uh, uh, Mike, in the second tier? Toronto, Baltimore, Boston, Miami. Boston. Um, don't have Mookie Betts, but they're probably I, I could see them being the AL equivalent of the Marlins for us this year. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that when we're talking about the, the first tier, uh, those are going to be some supercharged games. All of those, those teams really do bring out a lot of, 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 uh, fervor in the fan bases to beat each of those teams that you just mentioned, uh, whether or not they're, they're going for the playoffs. And obviously right now, yes, those are the first tier teams that we're having, having to deal with. And now the Yankees included, on on a, a although it you know technically just as many games as we usually play them but still having to do a little bit more more with the way everything works I don't even know exactly how the the standings are going to work I guess I got to do a little bit more research on that too but um, that that's basically how I think especially the the second tier that we're talking about breaks down is because when I look at what American League East teams do that are that are in the upper echelon. They seem to feast off the fact that they get to play Baltimore and Toronto all the time. So, uh, and and you know, the way our luck goes, the, those are going to be the 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 pesky teams for us too. Especially, you know, everybody, you know, when Baltimore was terrible last year, uh, people were saying how good that they're going to be because it's a very young team. So. You never know how it's all gonna gonna go, and this is sixty games, so let's see what happens. So, David, I guess said another way, I, I guess I'm just hopeful of a, 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 a fearsome foursome, I guess, with Ahmed Rosario, McNeil, Conforto, and Alonzo. How do you think we stack up? Like I said, we have a top tier competition. Uh, we're going to be playing ten each against Philadelphia, Washington, Atlanta, four games against Tampa Bay and New York. I agree with what was just said, we won't really know until we see these guys in spring training. We won't really know what their problems are, what their challenges are, how they feel about it, what's their strategy. Uh, we, there's a lot of real estate time-wise between now and then, and I'm sure we'll hear stories and we'll read the Daily News or the Post or the Times, or any of the online blogs. You guys will have podcasts between now and then, and we'll be able to better understand what those challenges might be, but we won't really know until we see them in action because you guys are all experienced baseball viewers, so you'll be able to see if Syndergaard's windup has changed, if his release has changed. You know that when the uh, SNY group starts broadcasting the games again, you know that Ronnie will talk about it, you know that Keith will talk about it, you know that Gary will talk about it, so we'll get more information. We just don't have the information right now. So, Rich, pragmatism rules the day. 
is it wrong to have expectations placed upon these guys? I think so. I, I think um, it's like we said in the uh, in the last podcast. We're all through a looking glass here, unprecedented, all those things that we've talked about. And in a sixty-game season, you know, you, you've you've heard all this already, but I'll just spout out a couple of things. Look at where the Nationals were after sixty games last year. In fact, I'll tell you where they had just gotten swept by the Mets, swept four at City Field. I believe they were. 10 under 500, something like that, and they've gone to win the World Series. So in a 60-game season, any literally weird stuff will happen. It, it's going to be a – they always say the season's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, this is going to be a sprint, not a marathon. And and so we're going to see things we're not used to seeing. We're going to – you think about this. Somebody said today that, uh, you know, if, because you're playing 37% of a season, if you have a four-game losing streak, it, it's the equivalent of a 15-game losing streak. Right. You know, exactly. uh, so you can't you can't tolerate that. You know, it, it might kill you. It kill you your season. So everything is different now, and um, and so I think we have to do what you've been saying, Mike, which is just accept the fact that everything is different. Let's be thankful we have baseball back. Hopefully, we'll get it through to conclusion, like we've been talking about. But having any expectations on anything, I think, is is just crazy, you know. And I think we have to just go into it and enjoy it, you know. And and one thing, if as if the Como didn't throw enough cold water on me with the Cespedes thing, he threw more on me when he said that he thinks that the schedule is highly unfavorable for the Mets, which we know that, you know, we know they have to play 30 games against the Braves, Nationals, and Phillies, all tough teams. We still don't know. If you guys know, tell me. But. I've heard the Mets will play the Yankees six times as a rival. I've heard they'll play them four. I'm not sure which it is, but they'll definitely have to play the Yankees, Red Sox, and Rays, and those teams are, um, you know, that that's going to be hard on top of the three divisional opponents. And the Toronto Blue Jays, yeah, they can't pitch their way out of a wet paper bag, but from, and I had lost track of this, from what Susan and Howie were talking about, that team is loaded offensively. They're going to be mashers, so... You know, if you're going to play them four times, you have to watch your back there. So, yeah, maybe you get a little bit of a break with the Orioles. Maybe you get a little bit of a break with the Marlins. I know they're always tough on the Mets. But, you know, that 60-game season, not only can we, do we not know what to expect from the pitchers and the hitters on, on the team that we follow, they're thrust into a very, very tough schedule. And I know I'm whining right now, but, but it bothers me <laughs> that the Mets have to draw this tough schedule. You know, look at these teams out west. You know they're going to have probably a little bit easier time of it, um, and we know the central divisions in both leagues are not great. So, but the Mets are going to have to suck it up. You know, and and so if they end up in the postseason, and we don't know if even if that's expanded yet, if they end up in the postseason and and they make a run at this, I don't want anybody telling me it, it's somehow invalid because the Mets are going to have a very tough road through those sixty games. Yep, and out of those thirty-eight, are going to be really tough. You know what? I don't care. In order to be the best, you got to beat the best. That's the way I see it, so play ball. Gentlemen, unless you have any outstanding issues, I'll toss that around the room. I'll move on to number 59 very quickly and get on to our final word. Outstanding issues going once. Outstanding issues going twice. Sold. Let us move on to number 59 in Mets history. Uh, Short list rather unremarkable list, but an interesting list. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I asked you guys specifically to look on the Ultimate Database one because uh, a little longer, 
and gives us more, a little bit more conversation. So I'll I really think I really think uh, Chuck Hernandez is is the way to go here. Go for it, Sam. Pick it up. Number fifty-nine, Sam Maxwell. No, I mean I don't I don't know. It's just uh, like who is Chuck Hernandez? Apparently he wore it for in, a while in 2019, and I have no idea. He was a coach. That's what I thought. Uh, and he was a bullpen coach last year. So, I mean, I guess he got fired on 6-19-2019 because he was the last person to wear uh, 59. You know, Jose Lobatone, who is kind of a unremarkable player, who was supposed to be something, Guillermo Mota, who brings up a lot of uh, animosity in Mets fans. And he's the one who wore it the longest. This is not only, and I'll pass it over to you, Rich, with the number, um, it, it's not only an unremarkable one. I, I guess at this point, Dan Worthen is the one who takes the most esteem here, winning a pennant with this uh, this number on. Good point. Rich? As I look at the list, Chuck Hernandez uh, must have been let go because that, that 619 was when they got rid of um, Dave Island and they purged a bunch of guys. Mets were at Wrigley last year, and uh, that's when they brought in Phil Regan. So he must have been let go in that whole uh, thing where they got they got rid of a few of the pitching coaches. Uh, maybe it was the bullpen coach, something like that, when they, they wiped out the pitching coaches. So I'm assuming that's where Chuck Hernandez lost his job. Jose Lobatone, I mean, you know, he, he was – if you remember in early 2018, the Mets lost um, the Mets lost Plawecki and Darno on consecutive days, and so they were desperate for catching, and they brought up Lobatone. So uh, you know, obviously, a very short run with the team, and um, and I think he was up and down throughout the 2018 season. I'm sure he wasn't on the major league squad that entire time that's listed there. Um, and then you know, you go to Alay Solaire. I remember a game against the Diamondbacks in the 2006 season. Where when the Mets, uh, I believe that was Solaire's rookie year, and he threw a complete game shutout, and everybody was all over him, like, oh, my God, this guy's going to be great. And he, and he was very nondescript after that. And the one thing, Mike, um, and also, David, that I'll throw your way as a nice segue here, Ed Lynch, he was 36 to me. I have no recollection of him wearing 59. Now, obviously, this is very early, 1980. Uh, for a month, but I have absolutely no recollection of him wearing 59. Did not know he wore the number until I was uh, doing my homework for the podcast. So, gentlemen, take it away. Nor do I. Uh, like you say, I remember him for a different number, but he always gets my respect. Uh, the numbers might say otherwise, but I think he's one of the most underrated pitchers in Mets history. Dave, take it away. Well, I'm kind of partial to names, and Josh Smoker has one of the best baseball names. He, he, it sounds like he's a character out of a Humphrey Bogart movie, and you know he, he's pretty uh, in, early in, into his career, but that would be my choice for number 59. But the one that comes to mind, obviously, is Dan Worthen, because he's the most recent person to wear the number 59. There you go, and the same indicated... Uh... You know, as pitching coach, he was with the 2015 team. Well done, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, we'll move into our final word, but before that, uh, Mr. David Krell, everyone. Sir, thank you very kindly for joining us on the Messian Podcast this evening. Uh, at this time, please, once again, would you just uh, educate our fans and listeners as to what you do 
uh, with your time, sir. <laughs> well, the, the New York Mets in Popular Culture is my third book. It's an anthology that I edited. I have two essays in it. It's available for pre-order on Amazon and also on McFarland's website. And I just want to give a shout-out to the contributors because they all did a wonderful job in educating me in terms of uh, avenues that I hadn't considered in terms of Mets fandom and, and Mets scholarship. Uh, as far as what I'm doing now, I'm working on the 1962 book, which is coming out next spring, and a Christmas movies book after that. So I'm keeping myself fairly busy, but baseball history is my passion, and that's what I'm focused on at the moment. Very good. And once again, thank you kindly on behalf of Sam and Rich. Uh, and Rich, I'll give it to you. The floor is yours for your final word, sir. Health. That's, you know, they agreed to play. That's great. Um, nothing will stop this season except health. So here's wishing good health to all major league players and their families and everybody involved in the sport of baseball. And of course, everyone on the planet, but um, we all need health. And if, and if we want to see this season go to conclusion and avoid, as David said, that catastrophic midseason stop. The only thing that, that we need is we need everybody to be healthy, um, and it's not only baseball, everyone. So let's stay healthy, folks. Thank you, Rich. Stay well. Sam, your final word. Hey, I'm looking at you, kid. I think hey. we're looking at baseball uh, <laughs> right in the eye, and they're going get, to get it through. David, thank you for not only coming onto this podcast tonight, but for bringing up Humphrey Bogart I was, as I was looking at a poster of Casablanca. So oh, thank you, thank very, you much. very much. <laughs> and Mr. David Crow, your final word, sir. Stay hydrated, stay healthy, get plenty of sleep. We're in for a long haul. This COVID is not done yet. And, you know, get your uh, pleasures and your opportunities for happiness where you can. I think we're all readjusting still. We're all reevaluating. But, you know, just take it one day at a time. I know it's a cliche, but that's all we can do at this point, whether you're talking about a job, a project, work, finding work, baseball, hobbies, just take everything one day at a time. Well said, sir. Uh, took the words right out of my mouth. Therefore, I will say time clock. Time to punch the time clock. When we speak again, players will have reported to work. So that's another step towards normalcy. Bid everyone help. Bid everyone peace. You know, take a step back. Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're going to say and proceed forward. It's probably best for all of us. Uh, hard times, hard decisions to make. So with that said, once again, Mr. David Crell, I thank you on behalf of Sam and Rich for joining us this evening on the Metzian Podcast. And on that note, I just want to say good night, everyone, and be well. Good night, gentlemen. Good night. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Be well.